that's it. Go with the flow, ladies and gentlemen, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, friends and enemies, lovers, haters, fans and trolls. Welcome to another edition of Roma. This will be the last thing I record in this little cabin perched on the volcano, the side of the volcano on Gran Canaria. A little later today, as soon as I finish recording this, in fact, I'm going to throw my shit in the rental car and move to a new place that I just rented down in Las Palmas. Before I forget, that song, by the way, was called Slow Down, as you may have guessed, and the band is The Grid, G-R-I-D. I will put a link up on my website, assuming I can find one, and since I don't have any fucking internet in this house, I don't know if I'll find one, but if I do, when I'm uploading this beast you'll find it on my on my website uh i've been thinking about some interesting things up here in the mountains and the curvy roads of gran canaria the very very curvy roads of gran canaria um i've been thinking you know i talk about uh, my discomfort with the discrepancies, the inevitable discrepancies between who I am and who you may think I am. And uh, that was uh, thrown into very, um, well, a couple of things happened. I was speaking with a friend recently who listens to the podcast a lot and who knows me personally. And the friend uh, was like, oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I know you really well through the podcast, and it's not exactly the same person that I know personally. And um, that was also reinforced by a guy who said something on Reddit that I noticed a few days ago. I had um, I'd said something snide on Twitter, I think, about Cristiano Ronaldo, who's a big soccer player and uh in over here, he's Portuguese, but he's uh, things from the island of Madeira, not as I have said previously, um, Cabo Verde, but yet another Portuguese speaking island out in the middle of the fucking Atlantic somewhere. And uh, he plays for Real Madrid, which makes him arch enemies of Barcelona, who I support as a you know longtime resident of Barcelona and all that. But you know, I don't take this shit very seriously, so that's not why I get annoyed by the guy. I get annoyed by him because he's always posturing. He prances around like a little pony. He bitches at his teammates when they don't make, you know, their pass perfect to him. And like, you know, how am I supposed to be the greatest in the world if you can't even, you know, pass me the ball, you idiot. He's just kind of a dick, at least on the field. Um, and uh, a lot of people feel that way. I'm not the only one. Anyway, this guy uh, apparently got offended by that. And he uh, very kindly pointed out that I'm a dick too because I posture and I uh, cultivate this image uh, of myself as being so chill and so cool and like I just don't give a shit, man. I'm too, I'm above it all, you know. And um, you know, here's the thing: uh, this guy may be a troll, and I'm about to uh, hand him a big old bowl of troll chow. But he's right. He's absolutely right, or at least he's absolutely partly right, uh, in as much as, you know, there's stuff I don't talk about on this podcast, uh, either because um, I'm, because it involves other people, you know, that's the primary one. And I remember I had a professor in college years ago who lived with a writer, and he used to talk about, I heard him talk about this several times in class, which suggests to me that it was something he was still working out in his own head. Anyway, he said uh, that he had read one of her manuscripts and there was a character in there that he recognized as himself. And at first he felt uh, violated. He felt that there was a betrayal of trust and, and he was pissed off and yada, yada, yada. But this guy taught literature. He loved literature. And I guess, you know, eventually he came to the conclusion that her first um, allegiance was to her work, not to her friends and her lovers and her family and so on. And so he was like, you know, hey, if you live with a writer, you just have to like, you just have to accept that you are public property and you have no privacy and that they might use anything you say or anything about your character or some argument you have in the middle of the night that that might show up in their next novel, you know? 
I, and I see his point, um, but I don't really think, you know, I don't think it's impossible to be a writer or a podcaster or whatever, share parts of your life and your soul and your process of thinking things through um, without betraying your friends. So, and I try not to do that. So, yeah, if I'm going through personal stuff, relationship issues, uh, you know, whatever, uh, I I don't really want to bring that out here. All similarly, if I'm, if I feel like shit, if I wake up and I just feel like, fuck, I, I just hate everybody today, then that's not a good day to record a podcast, you know? Uh, at least not one of these, not these Roma things where it's just me sitting in a room. Uh, if I'm talking to someone else, then then I go with their energy and I, you know, I feel good. I like talking to people. I like hanging out with people, as I hope is clear to all of you by now, by this point. Um, and so I kind of forget that I, I felt like shit. But if it's just me, then, you know, and I'm in a shitty mood, I'm not going to record a podcast. So you don't see that part, you know, except for <laughs> except for those unfortunate ones a few episodes back. Um, so inevitably... The image that you get of me or of any public figure is partial. It's filtered. It's intentional. It's curated, to use a word that's going around a lot lately. Um, but that doesn't mean it's dishonest. It just means it's partial. And, you know, sometimes there, there's a lot of selfishness in what I'm doing, right? There's like, a, I'm like a... I'm like an exhibitionist in some ways, and I've never wanted to show my dick to kids, but I can see the the sort of cleansing feeling of like, fuck it, this is who I am. Yeah, I, I, I don't care. Here's the ugly part. I don't care. And then I, I'll survive it, and, and that'll like give me some sort of strength or something. So I don't know. I can see that, but I don't want to do that, A, because, you know, it sucks on your end, and you'll all say, fuck that guy. I don't want to listen to his shit anymore. Uh, because, because it is really selfish and useless. Um, and you know, and because a lot of it involves other people. So, and I want to respect them. So anyway, I'm sorry to keep harping on this, but, uh, I just feel like it's part of keeping my own soul in alignment to, to acknowledge it occasionally. And, um, so yeah, troll, you win, you win this round. Uh, and you know, sorry, Cristiano Ronaldo, if that was you using a, a you know fake handle or something, I'm sure you're a really nice guy. What else have I been thinking about? I've been thinking about how often what appears to be uh, indicative of weakness is actually part of the strengthening process, and and this is no great insight. I'm sure you've thought of this too, but it's been on my mind recently. You know, like I'm living up in this cabin on the hill and I park down below and, you know, like sometimes I'll be coming up with some groceries or whatever and I get up to the house and I'm kind of winded, you know, and I'm like, fuck, I'm an old fat fuck. I'm so out of shape, blah, blah, blah. And that's true. Okay. But there's no way you're going to get in shape without huffing and puffing. Right. So the huffing and puffing is a part of the strengthening process. You, you lift weights, you feel weak as shit afterwards, you know. And I think this all applies emotionally as well, intellectually as well. Tiredness, exhaustion, insecurity, fear, vulnerability, all these things are indications of growth, of strengthening. Of So when you're feeling bad, just remind yourself that this is part of feeling unbad. You got to go through this and... There's no avoiding it. Okay, last insight I've had, and this is... Um, or at least last insight I remembered that I wanted to mention on the podcast. So I'm driving around this island. I've, I've covered a lot of miles. The rental car people are going to be fucking astounded when they get their car back because they rent the car, you know, unlimited mileage because I'm sure they're thinking, well, where the fuck can they go? It's just an island. Well, I've gone everywhere. Believe me, I've gone in every fucking back canyon and twisty little tiny road everywhere on this island pretty much. And... um so in these journeys, I've seen a lot of beautiful houses, really beautiful, like my my idea of what a beautiful house is, you know, which may be a little bit peculiar, but a house that's 
I, mean, I really like a cave house, and there are a lot of cave houses on this island. So, you know, you look and you see the front, there's a veranda, there's a porch, there's, but above it, and it's it's like just on the face of a hillside, and above it, they sort of, I don't know, they put some sort of substance above on the, on the, um, the hillside that I think keeps the ground from sliding down during the rains and all that, which tells you that the bulk of the house is inside the mountain. Some of these houses are new. A lot of them are ancient. People have been digging caves in the rocks here for thousands of years since before the Spanish got here. To me, that's pretty cool, you know, to have a cave house with, you know, like a HEPA air filter and LED track lighting and solar panels and like the best things from modernity merged with the sort of ancient, you know, temperature control of the caves that we've been living in for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. That's pretty cool. So I see these houses. I'm driving by. It's like, ah, look at that. And I can see myself there. You know, I could grow some weed on the terrace because it's getting all this great sun and have some chickens and they've got this beautiful garden and you know I could see myself hanging there and write a book every once in a while and record my podcast and have like a little satellite dish and a you know fast upload to a satellite oh yeah high tech high tech cave living I could definitely see myself there so but then I start thinking yeah, but do I really want to be living in some little village in the middle of nowhere where I'm the only foreigner within, you know, 40 miles and everyone knows all my shit and when I'm not here, somebody's got to watch my house and I can't leave when the garden is growing because someone's got to take care of the garden or I'm going to have to pay someone and then what's the point of paying someone to take care of your garden and you're not even there to eat the shit that you're growing and, and then you just start going around in circles and you realize, well, actually, no, I don't, I don't want that. But I really appreciate it. And this has led me to the realization that in the modern world, we are taught to confuse appreciation with desire. We are taught to see a truck commercial and say, man, I'd like to have one of those trucks. How many people are driving around pickup trucks in the United States who never fucking use the back of the pickup truck, who aren't hauling farm gear and dogs and bales of hay like on the commercials? How many people are driving around in pickup trucks because they see themselves as the kind of guy who drives a pickup truck? I mean, they tell me pickup trucks, from what I've read, pickup trucks are the best selling, like the top four or five selling vehicles in the United States of America are pickup trucks. Are there that many people in America who really need a pickup truck? I don't think so. I really don't. I think that the bulk of those people are guys who are like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm a pickup truck guy. But actually what you are is a guy who's driving around in a two-seat car getting about 17 miles to a gallon. That's who you are. You're a fucking sucker is who you are because you've got less seat space than a goddamn Prius and the bulk of this shit that you're paying to lug around is just a big empty box in the back. That's what I think. That's what I would be if I bought a fucking cave house on Gran Canaria, right? It's confusing appreciation of something with wanting to invite it into your life, wanting to make it part of your life. So I see a friend who has a beautiful kid. I've got a lot of friends who have beautiful kids, one year old to 20 years old. And I, I'm astounded. I'm, I love it. I, I, I think it's fantastic. I admire them. I admire the work they're putting into it. I admire the love. I admire their strength and vulnerability and all the shit that they're facing, both literal and figurative. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Do I want to have a kid? Fuck no. Fuck no. Hell no. I mean, I'll babysit for a while, you know? Dogs. I see a guy walking around with a cool dog, and you look at the dog and like, what a cool dog. He's chill. He's confident. He just kind of cruises along with his dude. And I'm like, yeah, I, I want to be that dude. I want to have a dog. No, I don't. 
I don't want to have a fucking dog. I love dogs. Do I want to have a, do I want to be a guy with a dog in my life? Fuck no. My whole life would be impossible if I had a dog or if I had a kid. Same thing. You see your, your, your friend hooks up with this amazing woman. Oh, she's great. And oh, you want her, right? Yeah, you know you want her, but you're a dumbass. You're going to trade your friendship? You're going to betray your friend? Do you really want her? Because maybe she's perfect for your friend, but is she really perfect for you? Yeah. So we confuse often what we appreciate with what we truly want. And then we get it. And then we find out we didn't really want it. We just appreciated it. And I think we see this a lot. I was talking with Cassie about this and and she was like, fuck yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because in Spain, envy, there's envy, so much envy in Spain. And she didn't feel it the same way in Portugal. And uh, I don't know, in the U.S., I think there's a lot of envy as well because there's so much competitiveness and, and people are confused about the the different fields on which they're competing. You know, I've talked about my buddy Brian who has this massive yacht, beautiful, beautiful boat. Um, but it's never once occurred to me that I would want that boat or any boat, really. I'm just not a boat guy. I'm not a possession guy because... Possessions require so much fucking maintenance, you know? I want to have friends who have boats. I want to have friends who have ski chalets. I want to have friends who have houses on the beach. I don't want to have any of those things for myself. I used to joke, I want to have friends who, are, who have wives. I don't want a wife. I can't really make that joke so easily anymore, but uh, you get the point, right? Um, yeah, but I think maybe some of the people who hang out with my friend who are rich maybe not as rich as him, but they're rich. And so they, they're accustomed to measuring worth in possessions and income. So when they're on the boat, it's bittersweet pleasure. It's a bittersweet pleasure. Like, yeah, it's great. Everything's great. But why does that fucker have a boat? And I don't, we went to the same college. I've been working my ass off as long as he has. I'm as smart as he is. So how come he's got a 130-foot yacht and I'm living in a fucking brownstone? I think that's the way a lot of people think. And that's an expression of this confusion between appreciation and uh, desire. All right, that's enough ranting for me. I'm going to play a song now by Daniel Lanois, who is one of the coolest dudes alive. Daniel Lanois is mainly a producer. I think he did couple U2 records, including the Joshua Tree, um, and he did the soundtrack to a truly bizarre and unforgettable film called Sling Blade. If you haven't seen that film, I highly recommend it. It's the film that catapulted Billy Bob Thornton to fame, short-lived though it seems to have been. Uh, he's the guy who was married to um, Angelina Jolie for a while, and I think they wore vials of one another's blood around their necks or something like that. Um, my Again, I don't have the internet, so I can't confirm this. I'm just uh, talking out my ass. But as I recall, he wrote the screenplay for the, song, for the movie. He was completely unknown. He was some guy from, I don't know, Kentucky or Tennessee or someplace, this hillbilly, redneck kind of guy, but very, very smart wrote this screenplay, somehow got it in front of the right people in Hollywood. It ended up being made into a film that he starred in. Um, it's a very strange film, and the screen and the soundtrack is appropriately strange and moody as well. Um, but this is from another record by Daniel Lenoir called Shine. So he wrote that uh, soundtrack, but he's this producer, which is, I mean, it's such a cool job to me because he's the guy, he's like um, Phil Jackson, uh, basketball coach. He's the guy who can, he's like an, an ego wrangler, you know, he, he's the guy who can go into the studio with a band like you 2 and say like, hey, you know what, Edge, I think we need to... Um, take the edge off that guitar a little bit or you know what Bono I think if you like you know sing a little louder in this part but tone it down here and then slow that and he's the guy who fine tunes the geniuses what a cool job you know what a cool job to have people so 
high powered and so good at what they're doing turn to you and say, hey, man, we trust you. Can you help us make this a little better? This is Sometimes by Daniel Lanois from the record Shine. Sometimes, sometimes. So where is it that no man should go? Oh, there are so many places no man should go. Here's one. Uh, this is uh, an email I got just recently. It says, uh, thank you for the podcast. Blah, blah, blah. Sorry. Um, you addressed a listener who said, sometimes he has to stop from breaking down at the thought of what's the point to all this? Uh, He sounds a lot like myself, and while we all arrive to this conclusion from different beginnings, the main narrative is the white-knuckled, holy shit, I'm alone, the world is crazy feeling of what he describes. You also said once that you will never feel the emptiness of not having had a parent give you all the encompassing love most parents give their children. I believe you said something like, it's a hole that can never be filled. That stuck with me because it's such a precise way to describe that feeling. Stay with me, but I'm going to try and tie this all together. I battled addiction for almost 20 years. I'm in my mid-30s now, and I finally feel like I'm free of the desire to self-destruct. I have clear goals I'm trying to achieve, and this has given me clarity in my life that I may not have ever felt before. I'll always remember the way of dealing with my empty hole was by filling it with things that simply numb the pain. But it always comes back. The lack of a parental figure that truly loves their child combined with the state of the world and my opinions of it, which seem very similar to your own sometimes, has brought me to the feeling the listener described, which I then tried to find an answer to in very destructive ways, which then further led to the same conclusion. Until I started to focus on improving myself, to stop making excuses and to work harder. This helped me build my self-confidence and feel that even if I'm stuck in a world that means nothing and no one truly cares about me, then at least I'm going to focus myself, focus my mind on the feeling you get as you improve yourself. It has helped me tremendously. I'm sure many of your listeners feel like this is a given in life, but I had to learn this through experience. Age has given me this insight. If you truly stick with something, you will see the results. It will release dopamine, but in a much healthier way. 
healthier than the drugs did, is what he's referring to. Now to ask you a question, which should tie this all into a point. What's your opinion of the saying, a jack of all trades, master of none? Over the past five years, I've been learning guitar. In addition, I'm learning piano. I'm taking computer science. I'm making an effort to learn Spanish, and I'm probably in the best shape of my life now. I'm dieting. I'm eating well. I'm exercising regularly. I don't want to sound pretentious because I don't advertise this, and I even find it strange typing this out. But with so many areas of interest and so much of my time being consumed by these activities, I find it hard to excel in any one of them. Do you feel in your own life that having had too many hobbies and interests can be detrimental? Or do you think being well-rounded is more advantageous to the individual? Uh, And then he quotes, uh, Joe Rogan apparently quoted Miyamoto Musashi, who once said, once you understand the way broadly, you can see it in all things. Okay, thanks for that message. That's a good one. Uh, first of all, congratulations to you for finding your, your, your way out of that maze. Some people never do. And, uh, and it's very cool that you've done it. And it's very cool that you're even just by writing to me, knowing that, you know, I might read this, you're reaching out to help other people who are stuck in the same place. You're at a great age to do that. You're not an old fuck like me. You're, you're close, you know, you're close enough in age that somebody who's in that situation, they're in their twenties, you're not too far away for them to hear you, but you've come out the other side and that is invaluable to somebody who's stuck in the, in a dark place. So that's fantastic, and I hope anybody who heard that listened carefully and and find some wisdom in what he said. Now, as far as the well-rounded versus uh, specialized thing, I've always gone for the well-rounded. I, uh, when I was in college, I remember um, one of my teachers who who became a good friend of mine was giving me the advice that I, you know, to try to always make decisions that open more doors than they close. And that uh, phrase has stuck with me over the years. Of course, the problem is you're never going to become a brain surgeon or an airplane pilot or, um, you know, maybe a father uh, if you do that, because those things require closing a lot of doors and a lot of, you know, require a lot of focused attention um, I've always gone for a, a more dispersed attention approach to things. And yeah, it seems to be working out for me, but I can't uh, obviously recommend it as a career path to everyone because then we'd have no specialists in the world. And, you know, of course, the world needs them. And it's you get paid pretty well as a specialist, more than as a generalist in most cases. So it really depends what you're looking for. If you're willing to live with a lot of insecurity, financial insecurity, and uh, you know, you're know you more intent on satisfying, feeding your curiosity than you are in landing a good steady job and you know not having to worry about money ever again, then yeah, I, I think generalists are, they have much more fun. There's a t-shirt slogan, generalists have more fun. Kiss me, I'm a generalist. Yeah. But specialists, you know, if you need heart surgery, you don't want a generalist operating on you. Although, interestingly, the guy who did my father's kidney surgery was also like a test pilot in the Air Force, which it's a weird thing that you see often among people that you would think are extremely focused specialists that, in fact, you know, like a lot of great actors are also really good musicians uh, or painters. You know, you're always surprised. You, you know, Dennis Hopper was a great painter. Uh, apparently, Johnny Depp was a, got into the whole acting gig by way of music. He was in a band. There are lots of cases of this where you see somebody go, oh, he's an actor. And then you see him sit down at the piano. And it's like, holy shit. He's not just an actor, you know. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can knock them off one at a time. You know, who knows? In any case, it's fucking fantastic that you're doing all this shit and you're you were stuck in the mud for a while and now you're fucking barreling down the road. So congratulations. 
Dear Chris, I'm 29 years old and I've been masturbating to porn for over half of my life. In the beginning, it was fun, but now I find myself drawn to it in times of frustration, loneliness, and depression, and the material I seek is getting more and more extreme as I lose control of my emotions. In recent times, I've sought therapy and self-help books to address the underlying issues that need comforting by this habit. Recently, I discovered the No Fap Movement, which is an online community of people recovering from porn addiction through rebooting their brains which uh, they do in a period of time away from porn in order to rewire the brain's reward system. Uh, I start to struggle because now I know the reasons why I'm drawn to this behavior and I have a model to explain it further, yet I'm always back to square one. I'd love to know what you think about this movement and why so many people are having problems with porn at this time and whether you have any advice for me. I feel this is beyond my control. Um, Yeah. So my feeling about addiction is that the substance of the addiction is not really all that important. So whether it's porn or Coke or Adderall or, uh, you know, fucking strangers or video games or slot machines, um, that the point is the underlying dynamic. And and as this listener said, uh, he turns to porn when he's depressed, when he's lonely, when he's scared, when he's insecure. And um, as the previous message, uh, he talked about how his addictions were a way of numbing pain. In his case, largely the pain of, of an absence of a, of a loving parental figure. So, you know, I really feel like the way to address porn is to look at the feelings, not porn, addiction, is to look at the feelings that are driving you to that addiction. I feel, um, you know, he mentions in his email that um, he started thinking about this in the episode with Gabor Mate, and also there are episodes with um, Stanton Peel, uh, another addiction specialist, and Carl Hart, another addiction specialist. I think we're going to have m- maybe all of them in this uh, first edition of Tangentially Reading, by the way. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe just a couple of them. Uh, depends how it all pans out. But in any case, I think all of them would agree that the focus should be on the underlying feelings that are driving you to this behavior, whatever the behavior is that you find to be self-destructive and problematic. And that it's really not about the porn. Now, having said that, porn does lend itself to addictive behavior because it's uh, it, it does give a short-term distracting uh, pleasure especially to men. Uh, I don't, I think most women don't, don't get that same sort of surge from porn. Um, and so, you know, like cocaine gives certain people a very, uh, powerful surge of pleasure chemically porn can do the same thing. Um, you know, so can sugar, uh, so can chocolate, so can, you know, whatever driving fast, lots of things. So, I, I don't get distracted by the whatever the behavior is. And the thing about porn is, you know, also you've got all the shame around it. So it's, it's you know, it, that sort of turbocharges the thrill, but it also makes the, you know, the peaks are a little higher, but the troughs are a little deeper because you're disgusted with yourself. And then that feeds into the same pattern of, oh, I'm a piece of shit and I want to forget what a piece of shit I am. So I'm going to like look at this woman getting fucked and then that's going to make me feel better for 10 minutes. And then I'm going to feel like an even worse piece of shit. And so you get into this downward spiral and the key is to get out of the spiral whether it's porn or whatever, it doesn't, I don't think it matters. So I would, my, my feeling is focus on you, on your life, on what's making you feel unhappy, what's making you feel afraid, what's creating the feelings that then trigger your porn thing. 
because often, you know, you go to these AA meetings and it's like, okay, you guys are giving up alcohol, but you're standing here drinking 19 cups of coffee and smoking a pack of cigarettes in 20 minutes. Like, well, yeah. Are you really dealing with your addictive behavior or are you just getting rid of this one and replacing it with other ones, which may be slightly less destructive, you know, or at least socially more acceptable? Or I think the key is if you want to get your shit together, you got to deal with the feelings, not with the behavior they trigger per se. You know, I feel like that's symptomatic as opposed to uh, really solving the disease. And yeah, you might, if you can afford it, therapy would would be great because there's nothing like hearing yourself say shit out loud. And and in that sense, this podcast is therapeutic for me. I say shit out loud that otherwise I probably wouldn't say out loud. Um, and so it's it's got some therapeutic uh, appeal for me. So I guess I owe you people money. Shit. A friend of mine sent me an email recently, young guy, he's 14. Uh, he's the son of a, of a buddy of mine and he and I have become friends and uh, he's fallen in love for the first time. And he wrote to me and he said, yeah, I kind of fell in love with this girl and she lives kind of far away. And I was wondering if you have any advice, like, should I go see her or not? Stuff like that, I guess would be off awesome. <laughs> so I don't know if he listens to the podcast and he was hoping I'd respond to it here or if he was looking for an email. Anyway, I wrote back to him. Um, but just in case he's listening to the podcast, uh, well, yeah, he already got my email, but I thought I'd share it with you. You can hear what a what a yammering yammering fool I am. First of all, anytime I'm talking about love, I, I there's the disclaimer. I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about. Nobody does, right? So and I said that to him. Uh here's how I think about it, okay? This doesn't mean it's an answer. Doesn't mean I'm the old man on the mountain who's figured it all out. I haven't. And maybe one of the coolest things in life is when you do think you figured it all out and something happens and you realize you haven't and you're like, oh, fuck. But it's also a nice feeling, I guess, in a way. Uh, here's what I said to him. Okay, love is the fire and some people in our lives are like matches. This girl you met is a match and she lit a fire in you. But almost everyone, including yours truly, has made the mistake of thinking the matches are amazing because they have this effect. But in fact, it's the fire that's amazing, not the matches. Although mat some matches are great. I'm not saying the people who make you feel love aren't amazing, but it's, it's the love that's amazing, right? And we get obsessed with the matches. So we think things like, nobody's ever made me feel this way before. She's the only one. I can't live without her or him. Uh, but what we're really feeling is the warmth of the fire that that match started. As you know, I say to this guy, there are many ways to build a fire. Sometimes lightning strikes, sometimes you rub a stick in a groove and something ignites. That was sort of a crude sexual metaphor for a 14-year-old, but maybe he didn't get it. Um, but to be truly happy, we need to recognize that we hold the fire of love within us. And as great as it feels to share this warmth with someone else, they're not actually necessary to keep it burning. Many people never understand this. So when the person leaves because they die or they change their mind or marry someone else or whatever it is, the fire goes out and love leaves with the person that they loved. But really, we should each hold our own fire and share it generously, but never let anyone else walk away with it. As you know, fire, like love, can be shared without anyone losing anything. Um, you know, and then I go on, but it's more personal to him. But I think that's an important concept that the person who creates that feeling in you is not the feeling and that we should all aspire, I think, as much as possible to maintain that feeling, to hold our own fire and uh, not misattribute it to some external source something that can take it away and leave us feeling empty and cold. All right, let's go to the next one. This is a poem sent to me, and uh, it's a beautiful one. 
So the guy doesn't say whether he wants his name used or not. So I'll just say his name is Parker and uh, we'll leave it at that. The poem is called As Far As The Eye Can See. Lost on a forgotten road, I see my soul flowing through the sea. How wide and vast it expands as far as the eye can see. How beautiful is thee, I say, as I look up into space. Infinite my mind loops through the space and time loops. When I stop and look and think, how crazy can it be that everything I sense and see is really part of me? I sit in wonder at this thought as far as the eye can see. Nice. Really nice. I really like the way he repeats loops. Infinite my mind loops through the space and time loops. That's a nice touch. Get that loopy feeling. Create it not only with the word, but with the rhythm. I think it was, uh, who was the poet who said, "'Tis not enough, tis not enough, no harshness gives offense. The sound must seem an echo to the sense." Yeah, I forget the name of the poet, but somebody knows it. Uh, You can Google that and it'll pop up. It's quite famous. Okay, just a couple more. Let's see. Uh, This, I know you don't, uh, I'm in high school and I'm hesitant to get in a relationship because I have no experience with them and I'm afraid it will crash and burn. What is your advice to get around lack of experience? Just dive in, prepare to learn and hope for the best? Yep. I have a similar question about drugs. I want to use them in the best possible way for personal growth. I've decided to wait until adulthood to try any intense psychedelics, but I am interested in weed. Would you recommend to make it as healthy as possible? Oh, what do you recommend to make it as healthy as possible? Uh, Okay, so let's talk about relationships first. And actually, this reminds me of something I said, I think, in the last episode of this uh, podcast. I, I was A guy wrote to me and asked me to give advice to his son about drugs and some, their sex or something. And I said, you know, like, do as much of both as you can without hurting anybody. And I think I was a little flip about that. And, and maybe I, I honestly should have gone into a bit more, especially in light of the fact that there are high school kids and 14-year-olds listening to this podcast, apparently, which is not something I think of generally. I, When I think of the people listening to this, I imagine people in their 20s and 30s, um, but I guess there are, are significantly younger people listening to this, and uh, so I should try to keep that in mind. Although I do, cl- I do mark every episode explicit. So at least on iTunes, it comes across as explicit. So if there's any parental control, I guess I get filtered out of their computer or something. Okay, here's how I feel about, I think, first of all, good move on the psychedelics. Your brain is developing. It's a very fluid and malleable right now. And um, you got enough shit to deal with. You're already tripping. If you're... 16 or 17 you don't know it okay you won't but you'll look back believe me 10 20 years from now you'll look back and you realize like you were tripping right through adolescence uh so just enjoy that you know (laughs) you're already high you're a teenager geez um (laughs) anyway uh so good idea with the psychedelics save that that's good weed Eh, you know, I don't think it's a huge deal if teenagers get high uh, occasionally. I think it's probably not a good thing for 16-year-olds to be going home every day after school and getting, you know, smoking it up. Um, I don't know. I know there's some brain toxicity associated. There have been some studies that have indicated that, you know, maybe there's some developmental changes. I honestly, I don't know that material well enough to be sure one way or another. I I don't think it's a huge deal. I, I think with those studies, there's often a lot of bias, um, you know, against marijuana, which is maybe starting to shift a little bit, but you really have to read the secondary reports to start to find it. But, you know, like I said, you're already in an altered state of consciousness at that age. Uh, And 
if if you can just enjoy, if you can learn to enjoy being a teenager, that is an incredible accomplishment. Because I know it's hard. I know. As you're a teenager, you're finding shit out about the world that's extremely disappointing. You know, when you're 10, 11, I mean, you might still believe in fucking Santa Claus and the world's magical and like everything's great. And mom and dad are these incredibly powerful beings who will always protect you and always make sure everything's great and you got nothing to worry about. And, you know, like does Susie like me? That's your biggest fucking problem. Then you get to be 14, 15, 16 and you're like, you start to look around and like, what? What the fuck is going on? There is no Santa Claus. Mom and dad are just people. I'm going to have to get a job someday and I got to figure out like what the fuck I'm going to do the rest of my life. And I'm scared of boys or girls or whatever it is I'm into or, or, you know, heaven help you. I'm gay. I'm trans. Oh, fuck. You got a lot of shit to deal with. And high school is a goddamn meat grinder. You know, all these assholes with all their power, popular kids who can fuck up your whole life. But they're just dumbass 15 year olds too which is why they're cruel because they're as scared as you are they just have more power you don't want to give 15 year olds power look at what happened to joffrey in game of thrones yikes anyway so what the fuck was your question kid oh uh relationship i have no experience and i'm afraid it will crash and burn of course it'll crash and burn that's the point Get in there, have some fun, meet somebody, feel the pain, and it'll crash and burn. And then you'll do it again, and that'll crash and burn too. And then you'll crash and burn another one and another one. And finally, you'll start to get a sense of how to avoid the crashing and the burning. But you know what? You'll never really be in control because you both have your hands on the wheel And it often, almost always happens that ultimately you're going to come to an intersection and want to go in two different directions. So another crash and burn. That's the way it is. So there's no way around it. Uh, There's a Buddhist saying I've always loved is no snowflake ever falls in the wrong place well i don't know i mean maybe i love the expression but i don't know some snowflakes fall in sewers i'm sure they're not very happy about that but i get the idea you know the idea is that things happen the way they have to happen so the crash and the burn is part of the experience of growing up I was talking with a friend recently, you know, one of the most intense loves I've ever felt. I think there was a Toma episode about this, by the way, I'll get to it. I'll I'll get to it, Uh, was uh, about my first high school girlfriend. Talk about a crash and a burn. Holy shit. She shattered me, shattered me. I was destroyed. I was walking around wearing sunglasses at night. I was... You know, strangers were coming up to me on the street and giving me a hug. I was just this walking wound. Right. But I I look back and what the fuck? She was, we had absolutely no compatibility. Thank God that happened. I would have given 10 years of my life. I would have given my left thumb. I would have fucking sacrificed my best friend on the fucking pyre in order to keep her. And that would have been the worst possible outcome. So part of the crashing and burning is not just going through the full range of emotional, you know, oh my God, I love you so much. This connection is so deep. I've never felt this before to, ah, you're ripping my heart out of my chest. But you need to do that right? You need to do that to become a human being, an adult human being, to have compassion for other people who are going through that experience. If you've never gone through it, you don't know what it feels like. And if you don't know what it feels like, you're an asshole. You can't help you be an asshole because other people's pain, you don't feel it. And being a big part of being a good, decent person on this planet is looking at someone in pain and suffering a little bit yourself. You got to do that. And in order to do it, you got to pay your dues. So, yes, 
Yes, you do, Jimmy, have to crash and burn. And good luck to you because you won't burn up. You'll still be there when the fire goes out and you'll be better and stronger than ever. Uh, yeah, there was another Buddhist expression. What the fuck was it? Right. Wisdom is the joyful acceptance of the sorrows of the world. I'll say it again. Wisdom is the joyful acceptance of the sorrows of the world. I can't say I'm there, but I've been there. I've visited. I've passed through that place where I had my shit so together that I could simultaneously feel the sorrows of the world and still maintain a sense of joy. Um, and I aspire to spend more time there. But, you know, it's like the top of a really slippery mountain. If you're lucky and you're really focused, you'll get up there for a second and then you'll start sliding down the other side and you'll have to catch yourself and start sliming your way back up. You can't stay there. At least I can't stay there. There's no flat spot to sit. There's, you know, there's, it's just a peak. And so you, you keep climbing up and sliding down. Uh, and, you know, maybe if you're close enough, when some really bad shit hits, then you can reach it and, 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 you know, get through the pain with an awareness of that. And I felt that kind of thing my whole life, you know, when something really bad happens, it, it gives me some kind of strength or it reminds me that truth is better than, than comfort, as I think I've said before. Um, and that feeling, feeling, even if it's feeling pain, even if it's feeling loss and loneliness and despair and all that is better than not feeling. And the thing about depression is people think depression is that it's just like, oh, so terrible. People I've spoken to who have suffered from severe depression have said, um, it's, it's not even that it's so terrible. It's just that it's so nothing. It's just nothing. It's empty, numb, dull, nothing, gray. Not so much black. It's gray. I think gray sucks worse than black does as far as emotions go. Yeah. Okay, Jimmy, what else? So that's it, I think. You know, we'd, yeah, I mean, I... Check it out. It might be fun. I don't know. I'm not going to tell a high school kid to smoke weed. That'll get me in all sorts of trouble. But in general, I don't think it's a big deal. I think you're smart to hold off on anything else. If you hold off on weed, I don't think that's a big deal either. You don't, you know, it's, you're not going to miss it. Um, and, uh, you know, if you do any of that stuff, do it with people you trust. Do it with people you love, you trust, you know. Look, honestly, when I was in high school, I started smoking weed at 16, 17, something like that. And, you know, I'd smoke it, I don't know, once a week, once every two weeks. It wasn't something I was doing at home, certainly. It wasn't something I was doing on any sort of habitual basis. But, yeah, if we went out and we were going to go swim in at this waterfall with some friends and somebody had some weed, yeah, okay, occasional. Yeah, episodic, sure. For me, it was fine. Um but yeah, you do it. You do what feels right. You don't get in trouble. You don't do anything stupid. You don't buy it from anybody you don't know well. Because I'll tell you, there's some horrible stories about really nice kids in high school who buy weed. There's this one case in Florida where this girl, this new girl, moved to school, and she asked this really nice kid. He was an honor student. The kid didn't even smoke weed. But this hot new girl asked him if he could hook her up with some, and he knew some people smoked weed, so he got a you know a few grams of weed or whatever to give to this girl, and she fucking busted him. She was an undercover cop. Yeah, fuck that. So that's the world you live in, Jimmy. Be careful. If you get into that shit, be careful. And even more with psychedelics, because that shit will get you in prison for the rest of your fucking life, or at least the first half of it. And you can't afford that. So take no risks if you're going to get into that stuff. Not with your health, not with hanging out with the wrong people, and certainly not with any sort of legal thing. 
Okay, I can't listen to myself talk for more than an hour at a stretch. So that's the end of this. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all your support, however you do it. I'm not going to go through the list and read all your Amazon purchases and blah, blah, blah. But I do want you to know how much I appreciate it and how honored I am to be able to pay even part of the bills uh, with what some of you are sharing with me. So thank you so much for that. I feel very privileged. Since we've been talking a lot about love and and crashing and burning and so on, I thought I would end this with one of my all-time favorite crash and burn songs. This song, this artist was uh, given to me or, you know, I was turned on to Joe Henry by a girl named Sadie who was 16. I was teaching high school and I met her and we got to be friends and she was just one of these amazingly smart kids who was just decades ahead of her age. And, um, you know, I was, I don't know, I was in my late thirties probably and she's 16 and she, you know, we got to, like I said, we got to be friends and she was like, oh, you should check out this band and you should read this book and oh, there's this movie you really should know about. And, and part of me was like, what the fuck do you know? You're 16. But then I'd like listen to the band and it was like, holy shit, she, this is great, you know? And then I'd check out the next thing. Fuck, she's right. This is amazing. I thought I knew everything, but I didn't. Anyway, uh, Sadie and I are still sort of in touch thanks to Facebook. And I see that Sadie just had a baby. So I don't think you listen to this podcast, Sadie, or Sadie's mom, who I I met, who is also lovely. Uh, But if anybody listens to this who knows Sadie, please give her my love and tell her I still think of her with gratitude and thank her so much for turning me on to Joe Henry. This song is called Stop.
I'm not. 